Hi everyone. Um, like Fletcher said, we're reading from Acts 21 um, up to verse 26. Just give you a second to find it. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day, we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued on our voyage to Tyre, and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am not only, uh, I am not only, sorry, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. 
Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you treat yourself, sorry, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Well, g'day, friends. Uh, my name's Adam, if you haven't met me. It's still Adam, if you have met me. Um, <laughs> uh, what's going on? All right, we're going to be focusing, friends, on uh, cha- chapter 21. We're going to be focusing on verse 1 to 16 tonight. So uh, make sure you keep that open, ready to go. All right, let's, uh, let's tuck in. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, who can tell me what this is? Oh, it's not ginger. Oh. <sighs> It's not turmeric, it's turmeric, it's turmeric, it's spelt turmeric, it has an R in it. Who reckons it's pronounced turmeric? <laughs> Who's right and is, knows it's pronounced turmeric? <laughs> all right, all right, yep, okay. <sighs> it's pronounced turmeric. But so many people pronounce it turmeric that they've even started selling it without the R as turmeric. Oh dear. Friends, have you ever been in a situation when you were right about something, but everyone around you thought you were wrong? I'm guessing that uh, for some of the more strong-willed among us, uh, a bit like me, are thinking, oh my goodness, this is my life all of the time. And maybe there's some humble people out there, maybe uh, your best friend or your brother or sister sitting next to you, uh, who might have something a little different to say about the matter. And uh, maybe that person, uh, those who are a little bit more humble amongst us, maybe you can even think of a time when you started to believe you were wrong because everyone around you said something different, even though in the end, you were right. (sighs) I feel like I'm someone who seems to find myself a bit of a lone voice a lot. Maybe it's just a bit of arrogance coming through. Uh, It happened a lot during COVID. Uh, I was one of those slightly weird people who actually read the public health orders, the legal documents that came out. And so I was often talking with a bunch of people uh, who were convinced that such and such was the rule, and I would be trying to say something different, uh, to the extent that on one occasion, I had to telephone Service New South Wales Uh, to tell them that they had an error on their website uh, because the COVID advice on their website and the public health order didn't actually match. Um, But it actually turned out there was an error in the public health order on the first page, um, which they corrected later on in the document. Uh, So they corrected that for me. Um, So I guess in that instance, I was wrong, but I was also right because actually they were wrong. See, you know, so... Anyway, that time's passed. I'll get over it. I'll be fine. (sighs) For Paul in our passage, uh, he finds himself the lone voice in his determination to go to Jerusalem. Throughout this passage that we read tonight, he repeatedly finds himself being told not to go. He shouldn't go, even by some of those closest to him. Even some speculate 
in this passage that he was told by the Holy Spirit not to go. So why is Paul so stubborn in going to Jerusalem? Friends, we'll see as we head through the passage today whether Paul was wrong or right after all. So let's do a bit of an overview. Let's see what what is going on in this passage. We'll have a bit of a fly-through. The map's on the screen. Um, That'll help. Hopefully it's not too small. Um, We're starting... uh, We've just seen Paul has departed from Miletus, which you'll see is kind of mm, two-thirds of the way up, just below Ephesus. So the Ephesian elders had come down to Miletus, um, just south of Ephesus. Uh, And then we get a bit more of a sailing journey. They go to coast and then roads, uh, not the one in Eastwood, the one down here. Not Sorry, not the one down here, the one over there. Um, And then uh, Patara, and then they find a ship uh, that's crossing over to Phoenicia, and so that's the bit across. You'll see um, the big journey across the sea. Uh, and so they get on board. They set sail. They see Cyprus, the island in the middle. Uh, and so they land at Tyre. And so it's probably a bit of a, a bigger ship. They're going across the ocean rather than just kind of hugging the coastline. Um, and so the ship takes a while to unload the cargo in Tyre. But they can hang around. They've, stayed, they've saved a bit of time going straight across and so in Tyre, um, so nearly, nearly at the bottom, they stay there for about a week. Uh, and so while they're there, they go and find the disciples that live there. And those disciples, they ask Paul not to go to Jerusalem, where he was planning to go. But they leave, and uh, all those disciples, including their wives and children, they all go down to the beach, and they pray together, and they say goodbye, and they get on the ship again. Uh, And from there, from Tyre, they land at Ptolemais, just below, and they stay there for a day, and then they leave the next day. They finally reach Caesarea, um, just the last one at the bottom, before they go inland, and they're going to continue their journey by road to Jerusalem. But there's a few interesting things that happen at Caesarea. Uh, They meet Philip the Evangelist. Um, So he's not Philip the Apostle. He's one of the seven who were chosen to kind of wait on tables in Acts 6. Uh, but who ended up being a great evangelist. Uh, And we find out Philip had four daughters who prophesy. And then another prophet comes, one named Agabus, uh, who actually we we meet way back in Acts 11. Uh, He comes down from Judea, and so probably from Jerusalem or nearby Jerusalem, uh, and he prophesies about Paul's suffering in Jerusalem. And so then even Paul's friends who are with him, they start to plead that he doesn't go to Jerusalem. But Paul says that he is ready even to die in Jerusalem if he has to for the name of Jesus. So they give up. They say the Lord's will be done. They start on their way up to Jerusalem with some of the disciples from Caesarea uh, and they come to the home of Nason where they're going to stay and finally they're in Jerusalem. That's a bit of an overview. And so a lot of the commentaries that you kind of read, they call this section The Journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Good title, I guess. Uh, It's it's an important part of it. But there's a few other things that I'm going to point out from this passage along our way. We're going to talk about the journey, uh, but we're also going to talk about prophecy. You'll see this on your little outline that you got when you came in. Talk about the journey. We're going to talk about prophecy. Uh, And we're also going to talk about fellowship and affection in Christ. So they're the three things that we'll see from this passage that are important. So first, let's talk about the journey, the journey to Jerusalem. 
Why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Weirdly enough, we actually don't see much of the reason given in Acts, which is kind of interesting. Um, But we actually know from Romans 15, verse 25 to 26, you'll see verse 26 on the screen, that he's bringing an offering uh, from the churches uh, in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, Luke does mention this same sort of thing a bit later in Acts 24:17. He says, after a couple of years, um, I came to Jerusalem to bring for my people gifts for the poor and present offerings. But when he's writing, Luke doesn't actually emphasize this as the main game in Acts even though it seems to kind of be important to Paul in Romans. Luke emphasises something a little bit different. See, in Luke's Gospel, written by the same guy, one of the important things in Luke's Gospel is the section that is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. So Luke 9.51, we've got it up on the screen, uh, we see, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And Luke, again, who is now writing Acts, this account, he's deliberate in highlighting some of the parallels between Paul's journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Now, Gibson mentioned a little bit about this last week, but we're going to unpack it a little bit more. The first mention we get of Paul deciding to go to Jerusalem is back in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. There it is. Uh, It says, after all this had happened, uh, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I'd been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. Now, that that word I've uh, bolded on the screen, that word decided is kind of literally like put on the spirit, right? That's kind of what it says. You can see why we use the word decided. Um, And so there's a little bit of a debate about what this means, put on the Spirit. Is it like God or Paul or someone put on his Spirit, like, oh, you know, like, put it on my heart to do it? He just resolved to go to Jerusalem. It was on his Spirit to do it. Or does it mean the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, put on him, pushed him to go to Jerusalem? Bit of debate about that. But either way there's a significant conviction and resolve that Paul has to go. Paul must go to Jerusalem. And you see that conviction in the following sentence, where he says, after I've been there, I must visit Rome also. In other words, he must visit Jerusalem, that's really important, and he must visit Rome afterwards. Now that must word that I've highlighted there as well, uh, is a word that is a particular word in Greek that Luke uses. It's, the word is day in Greek, but you don't really need to know that. It's a word that he uses to indicate kind of a divine importance. Like, it's not just like, oh, I really must go and see Rome because it's really pretty. Um, I must go as a kind of divine importance. And so Luke uses the same word in Luke 9.22, which you'll see up on the screen, where he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, etc., etc. So it's fair to say that Luke's actually drawing some parallels between Jesus' resolve and the divine intent to go to Jerusalem and Paul's resolve and divine intent to go to Jerusalem. 
And we see a bit more of this kind of divine intent, God's intent to go in chapter 20, verse 22. You'll see Paul says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So here in this verse, Paul expresses being bound up to the Spirit or compelled by the Spirit to go. And we also get a few more parallels with Jesus' uh, journey to Jerusalem when Agabus the prophet comes on the scene. See, Agabus, uh, you'll see verse 11 onwards, Agabus predicts that Paul will be handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles. Verse 11, chapter 21, coming over to us, he, Agabus, took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind up the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. <clears throat> Have a look at nine, Luke 9.22 again. Notice the parallels. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That's the Jews. And then Luke 18 1832, and he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. The language here is very deliberate, isn't it? While Paul isn't killed in Jerusalem, just like Jesus was, and we could certainly take these parallels way too far and kind of say that Paul's trying to be like a, a new Messiah, he's trying to be a quasi-Jesus or something, that's not what he's doing. But what he is doing is taking up his cross and following in Jesus' footsteps. Notice what the verse just after that Luke 9.22 verse says. Luke 9.23 is when Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Just after he said that he must be rejected by the Jews. In fact, in both Luke's gospel... And in Acts, there's even a triple prediction of suffering. Three predictions for Jesus, three predictions for Paul. And then in the end, there's a resignation of handing the future over, not to my will, but to God's will. Notice what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And what did the disciples say once they resigned to Paul's fate? They say, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Coincidence? I don't think so. But what are the implications of all this? We see all the parallels. What does it mean? Well, first we need to see that Paul's discipleship involved a conviction to serve Christ and the purposes of the gospel, even in the face of suffering. Now, despite Paul's special role as an apostle, I think it's really, you can still say that this is a really good picture of what Christ, sorry, cross-shaped discipleship looks like. It's costly, it's driven by gospel purposes, and it's in the footsteps of Christ. See, friends, if we wish to follow Jesus and receive all the blessings and benefits that we will of salvation and eternal life, 
we must also be willing to endure the sufferings of this world on the way for the glory and joy that's set before us. And so it probably means us giving up some level of comfort in our lives by making decisions about work or family or study or relationships that are hard but are good for our godliness or for the gospel. It should mean giving up material things by being generous towards the gospel, by being generous towards our church. It might mean physically suffering or emotional suffering as we speak and affirm the unpopular and offensive gospel message in our world. Serving Christ in the face of suffering is what cross-shaped discipleship looks like. That's the first bit. That's the journey to Jerusalem. That's some of the parallels. I want to dig a little bit now into prophecy and the Spirit. See, in this passage, we get a picture of a time in the church where the Spirit seems to be playing a very active role in speaking prophecy. If you just read Acts, if you just sat down, read Acts, it's kind of not really surprising that kind of more charismatic and Pentecostal churches affirm these sorts of spiritual activities should happen in weekly gatherings and in the normal lives of Christian people. See, friends, I began my journey as a Christian in a Pentecostal church, but I've come to realize that I think that's a bit of a misunderstanding of what God is actually promising us in Christ. See, what I think we're seeing here in Acts is a particular moment in salvation history. It's the beginning of what we know as the last days. That's the time period we live in between the revelation of salvation in Jesus, the cross, resurrection, ascension, and before the perfection and new creation, the age between that's being ushered in with signs and with increased supernatural activity. It's in a similar way to the way that Exodus in the Old Testament, the first salvation of the people of God, was accompanied by signs and wonders through Moses. And I think that's particularly evident here in this passage in the way that the prophecies here are connected to Old Testament prophecies. The first mention in our passage we get of kind of something to do with the Spirit is in verse 4, but we're going to skip that for a little bit. We'll come back to it. Let's go to the, <coughs> sorry. Let's go to the first mention of prophecy. Verse 8. <clears throat> they reach Caesarea, and they stay at the house of Philip the Evangelist, who had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Wow. Goals, Philip. Good job. Four daughters who prophesy. But how did you keep the boys away from them? They're all unmarried. Good job. But then we don't hear anything else about these daughters from Luke. That's it. I reckon we can already draw some brief conclusions just by Luke's mention of them. See, Luke does point out that they're unmarried women. He doesn't define them by their relationship to a husband. And not just that, they're prophesying. That's the most desirable spiritual gift, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. See, I reckon highlighting this is pretty countercultural of Luke in that time. It shows us the importance of women in the early church. It affirms that the sisters among us 
are equal and valued in Christ. And more than that, Luke is surely highlighting this to show the active fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament book of Joel. Have a look on the screen. This is from the book of Joel in the Old Testament. Joel 2.28 says, Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Notice here in this prophecy, not just the emphasis on both men and women, but having the spirit poured out is exactly what's happening here. Philip has four daughters who prophesy. And friends, this prophecy from Joel was quoted by Peter at the beginning of Acts, Acts 2.17 at Pentecost, when the disciples first received the Holy Spirit. See, these daughters who are prophesying, they're evidence of this new age, of the last days. They're a fulfillment of God's promise in Joel. And so then Agabus appears in verse 10. Now, he's specifically identified as a prophet. We've seen him previously, as I mentioned, in Acts eleven twenty-eight, And back then, he seems to kind of be a legit prophet. He prophesies about a famine, and Luke says it took place. So he seems legit, right? He comes up to Paul, and he, uh, he doesn't just speak. He actually also acts out the prophetic words that he's speaking. And so I think there's a few important things for us to notice. You'll see verse 11 on the screen. This is the only time in the entire Bible when the phrase, this is what the Holy Spirit says, or more traditionally you might read, thus says the Holy Spirit, it's the only place in the whole Bible where it appears. The phrase, thus says, or, or this is what says, thus says works better, is only used in Revelation elsewhere in the New Testament. But that phrase, thus says, in fact, thus says the Lord, is used heaps in the Old Testament. Heaps. Almost a thousand times that phrase appears, and most of them are in the prophetic books. See, this is when God is speaking in the prophets. And not only that, we also see in Agabus' actions, he acts out the prophecy symbolically. That's really common as well in the Old Testament prophets. We get it in Ahijah in 1 Kings. He tears his cloak to pieces. Ezekiel, you might remember him lying down and doing all sorts of kind of interesting uh, things. Isaiah does it. Jeremiah does it. Hosea acts it out with his whole family, his marriage and children. Again, we see this real presence of Old Testament prophecy. And so we get this sense that not just Agabus being legit, he's speaking the words of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. This new age where God is speaking here. And we see that God's divine purposes for Paul are orchestrating that he will suffer if he goes to Jerusalem. But we come up with a few issues here. Are there contradictory messages from the Spirit? Or is Paul disobeying the Spirit in going to Jerusalem? Some people claim that. 
See, the issue begins in verse 4. That's the one we skipped over. Have a look at verse 4 in your Bible. It seems like the disciples' entire urge Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Wait a second. Didn't we see the Spirit compel Paul to go in chapter 20? Isn't that what it said? I think there's a fairly simple answer to this. I think the disciples' entire had some revela- some, some uh, understanding through revelation from the Spirit that Paul would suffer in Jerusalem, some kind of prophecy. But because of that, they, by their own volition, but because of their Spirit-filled love for Paul, will they urge him not to go. So it's in the Spirit, but it wasn't the Spirit urging Paul not to go. It was them out of their love for him. So that's the first question that comes. The second question comes from Agabus' prophecy. His words, right, in this prophecy, they're so reminiscent of Jesus' words. But there's a bit of a problem. Paul wasn't bound by the Jews, as Agabus says, and handed over to the Gentiles. He was actually rescued from the Jews by the Gentiles and bound by them. Have a look at uh, chapter 21, verse 31 to 36, a little bit further along. Uh, It says, oh, oh, so small, sorry. Um, While they, the Jews, were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Uh Uh-oh, you got agabusted. Or did he? Luke doesn't seem to have any issues affirming that Agabus is a real prophet. Paul himself even says in Acts 28, 17 to 19, he says, My brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. See, Paul seems to think that he was arrested by the Jew, or that that the Jews have caused this and handed him, him over to the Romans. And so I think it's possible to interpret the words about the Jews, even though they weren't the ones who physically bound him, the Romans did, that they're causative. If the Jews hadn't tried to oppose Paul, if they hadn't started beating him up, he wouldn't have been bound and handed over to the Gentiles, would he? Paul can even say, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans, the Romans are the Gentiles. So I think we're okay. Agabus seems legit. This prophecy seems legit. I reckon it's legit. So what are the implications then of this random prophecy stuff? Right. Can you get a, uh, implications? Here we go. So, predictive prophecy um, and special revelation of the Spirit. So predictive prophecy, predicting the future, um, was a feature of the early church. We can see that really clearly in Acts. But it might be less common now because we're not at the dawn of a new age, right? 
In fact, the Bible now is complete. The canon, what we call the canon, is closed. We have all the revelation from God we need for life and godliness. So what does prophecy look like now? It often looks more like bringing God's given word to bear on our context, speaking God's given word in the Bible into a situation. That's what the prophets were doing. They were taking God's word, speaking it into a situation. But for us, we have that word already in the Bible. So that's prophecy then and now. And the second thing to notice from this passage is that both men and women are to prophesy. And so, my dear sisters, you have such an important part to play in God's plan, in God's work, as well as my brothers. We must all know our Bibles well so that we can, by the Spirit's leading, bring that word to bear on situations and with people we find ourselves alongside. Even the least of us, sons, daughters, as we saw in Joel, even the servants, all of us who are in Christ have the Spirit. And so we can all bring the word to each other. And so we see from these prophecies and the work of the Spirit in Acts that God is powerfully in control of all of these events. His divine purposes are playing out. God's word is being spoken and it is coming true. And so we, we need not fear any situation. God is in control. His purposes work out. So we can courageously entrust ourselves to him. All right, the final thing we're going to have a look at in our passage is affection and fellowship in Christ. I think this is a really interesting uh, theme that we see in this passage. The previous passage, we saw the affection between Paul and the Ephesian elders. This is who the them was in verse 1 that you'll see. And so in verse 1, there's this real sense of not wanting to part from them. He's being like dragged away um, by the need to set sail. But the disciples in Tyre in verse 4, remember he goes to Tyre after that, verse 4, well, they're much less well-known to Paul. <clears throat> he probably knows of them. He travelled through Phoenicia, which is the region. Uh, we see that in Acts 15. But there's certainly not the kind of relationship that he had with the Ephesian elders. He'd, he'd spent around three years in Ephesus. But Paul seeks these disciples out he spends a whole week with them, <clears throat> and by the end of which, we see a repeat scene from the previous chapter. The Tyrians, they're so affectionate towards Paul, they urge him not to go to Jerusalem. And they all, including their whole families, they all come out of the city with Paul, and they kneel down on the beach to pray together, just like what happened when he left Miletus with the Ephesians. See, friends... There's a deep spiritual bond between Christians that is unique. We see this kind of affection again in this passage in verse 12. After Agabus prophesies, in verse 12, when we, Paul and his companions, uh, sorry, when, uh, so it says we, there you go, we, um, oh no, no it doesn't. Yes, verse 12, we, which is Paul's companions, uh, and the people in Caesarea, well, they both plead with Paul not to go to Jerusalem to suffer. 
And Paul answers, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul feels shattered as they cry. They beg him not to go. This is deep affection and fellowship and love that they have for one another. Their love for Paul is so much that they want to protect him from harm. They repeatedly try to dissuade him from this divinely commissioned purpose. So this is really hard, isn't it? Seeing someone you love in great danger of suffering for the gospel. Your natural reaction is you want to stop it from happening. But sometimes, sometimes, this can be contrary to God's good purposes for the gospel. See, Paul says here he is ready to be bound and, if necessary, follow in the footsteps of Jesus and die in Jerusalem. Now, in the end, he won't die in Jerusalem, um, but the Holy Spirit's told him earlier in chapter 20, verse 23, that in every city, prison and hardships are facing him. And after Agabus' prophecy as well, it's clear that though the Spirit has compelled him to go, Paul knows full well that to go to Jerusalem will be to suffer for Christ's purposes. So what would be the right response from those who love him? What would have been the right response? What should they have done? What should we do when we see those we love encounter suffering for the gospel? I think we see it in the parallel with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in verse 14. Have a look up on the screen. This is what Jesus says when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane facing the cross. He says, Father, if you are willing... Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so the disciples who are with Paul, his companions, when they finally give up on dissuading him, what do they say? They say, the Lord's will be done. This is the right response. Now, certainly we should pray for those who suffer. Jesus did it for himself. He said, if you're willing, Father, take this cup away. But more than that, not our will be done, but God's. So the implication of this is that we ought to have a deep care for brothers and sisters. The affection and emotion that we see in this passage and in the previous sections with the Ephesians, it's pretty intense, isn't it? Maybe uh, as you read it, it feels a little bit more like the drama at high school than it does kind of proper church relationships. But I think, I think we can open ourselves up a little more to vulnerability and affection than we used to between us in our fellowship. Friends, we don't want to be ruled by our emotions, but I think they have a valuable place in strengthening our fellowship with each other and the bond that we have as the body of Christ. Let's have each other in our homes. Let's invite each other into the mess of our lives. Let's be a bit more vulnerable and share what's really going on for us and be able to bear each other's burdens and pray for each other. And let's be willing to actually express affection and care for each other and for it to not just be too weird. But with all of that said, 
we mustn't let it hinder God's purposes. We ought to be careful that our love for someone doesn't cause us to dissuade them from honouring God. Now, I think this can be particularly hard for people who have kids or even for your parents with the decisions that you make. I've been a dad for a year and a half now, and it seems just unbearable to be okay with your kid doing something that might make them hurt, right? It's just, it's just, you just can't do it. For some of us, even those of us with Christian parents, it can seem sometimes unbearable for them to let you make a decision that might cause you to suffer, even if it's for the gospel. As we grow up, as we stand up for Jesus in a world opposed to him, most likely we'll be thought badly of for being a Christian. As we make decisions about study or work that our parents or relatives maybe feel isn't going to produce the best material outcomes, but might give us more opportunity to grow in Christ. See, I dropped subjects at uni in order to spend more time doing uni ministry. What will our parents' reaction be? What if we want to be a missionary in a dangerous location? What will our parents' advice be? I pray, I hope and pray it will be prayerful encouragement of us, of you. And if you're a parent, I hope that that's your reaction. But you might, friends, find yourself in a situation where parents or friends or people who love you because they care so much about you, they might try to stop you from following a Christ-honouring decision out of a fear of you being hurt or suffering. And what about us? What are we going to say to a friend or a loved one who we care about, who's facing suffering for wholeheartedly living for Christ? Are we going to be a voice dissuading them? Or will we say, not my will, but the Lord's will be done? We mustn't hinder God's purposes. So, was Paul right? Well, yeah, he was in going to Jerusalem, but actually not because things turned out exactly how he thought. They didn't. But because he was following the Lord's will. Paul journeyed to Jerusalem with God's leading in service of God, despite his friends dissuading him out of their genuine love and care. See, following Jesus can sometimes be hard. Convictions about God's leading can be hard to follow through. Bringing the word to bear on ourselves and others can be hard. And even love and fellowship can kind of be hard. But in all of this, in this passage, we see the goodness of God and his gospel as his will is done. So friends, will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be people who say, not my will, but yours be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us tonight uh, that um, as Paul goes to Jerusalem, that he is following in Christ's footsteps, that he is living a cross-shaped life, that he's willing to suffer for the gospel. Heavenly Father, help us as we follow you 
as we follow your son, Jesus, to be willing to suffer for the joy set before us. Help us to be willing to make hard decisions for the sake of the gospel. Heavenly Father, help us to uh, read your word and to know it well so that we might be led by you, so that we might bring your word to bear on situations and on others. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be uh, resolute in serving you, uh, even when well-meaning loved ones might, uh, in their care and concern for us, uh, dissuade us. We do pray that you would give us wisdom to discern your will, to be strong in the face of suffering and opposition, and to live for you all of our days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.